everyone. Welcome to Behind the Tour, the podcast from American Christian Tours that goes behind the scenes of the most iconic sites, historic characters, and true stories in American history to discover how God has been at work since the very beginning. Well, this is Aaron Cronk, and I'm here with Corey Hockaday and Krista Wenzel, and our desire and purpose is to provide insight for you guys today and hope for the future as we look at history from a biblical worldview. Well, hey, Corey. Hey, Hi. Krista. Hey. Good to see you guys today. Well, let's kick it off. We've got the behind the tour guide uh, portion here. So we have got a question that a listener has sent in. Jeff from California writes this. He says, clearly Washington, D.C. is being watched by the entire world right now. What are the circumstances and the origins of the choices that led to the location and naming of the U.S. capital city? Well, that's a that's a good question. That's a good question. I always find, you know, the I was really expecting to look at this question and think that there's a really complicated past and that there usually is. And there was no disappointment in at this time with it. So um, there was the Residence Act of 1790 that went through. And what happened was that Alexander Hamilton, which a lot of people know from, you know, we all know him as being the first secretary of treasury, but most modern Americans probably know him from his famous play. And so he had got together with Thomas Jefferson, who was our first secretary of state. And what had happened was, is Hamilton wanted to pass through to have one currency for all of America. At that point, all the different states had their own currencies. And so Thomas Jefferson's argument against that was that well, that's not very fair because the North had, the Northern states had acquired so much debt through the Revolutionary War, being very industrious, and Virginia being the largest and most wealthy of all of the colonies, now states, felt like it wasn't really fair that they would have to pay all that off. So uh, they came to an agreement, mm-hmm. and at the end of June of 1790, they got together with one legislator named Madison. God, I feel like we talk a lot about Madison and these founding fathers. They were do they were busy. You know, these aren't just like guys, they were busy. And so yeah. They're ubiquitous too. I want to add that. They're just kind of all over the place and everywhere at the same time. Yeah, exactly. So Madison at this point was a legislator. Like, you know, if we think of the House of Representatives, he was one for the state of Virginia and the Virginia legislature, they were not a fan of this idea at all. So Thomas Jefferson organized for Hamilton, Madison and himself to get together for a little a little dinner and they came up with this agreement and they compromised <laughs> saying, Hey, let's go ahead and bring the capital from further North. It had been in New York at this point, Philadelphia. There had been a couple of other areas where they'd had legislator, but they're like, Hey, let's have one place for capital and let's bring that down further South closer and a part of Virginia state. So they did that. And it was, it was really quick, actually, because that was end of June, they had passed the legislation, it was signed into law, um, just a few weeks later in July of 1790. And so that's how it came to be down there. And the naming of it, Washington, was after our great leader, George Washington, and the District of Columbia was district is 
you know, they didn't want it to be a state. So just a district, Columbia being the feminization of Columbus. Yeah. Is that how they put it? Like they wanted to like yeah. kind of God. Yeah. God God <laughs> well, and, and I've read that you guys, that uh, the IA on Columbia uh, just kind of means land of. Uh, so, you know, the, the Columbia, that was really a, an old poetic term for the United States, uh, land of Columbus, and that got assigned kind of in this realm to uh, Washington, D.C. And, and of course, George Washington was instrumental in picking the location. So he, he got his yeah. name pasted on that. Well, one. and too, didn't he decide they wanted it at the Potomac because Alexandria, Virginia and Georgetown were wealthy port cities at this point because the Potomac River mm -hmm. goes directly yeah. to the Chesapeake Bay, which goes directly to the ocean. So they wanted it to, to be a place where they could have a lot of commerce going on. And the location of it was very specific to, you know, for, for that purpose alone for the commerce. Well, and even the size, uh, I've read that the size, you know, the hundred square miles, in fact, you can read that in our constitution uh, in uh, uh, article one, I believe section eight. <laughs> uh, so you can, that was written into the constitution the federal city and even its size wow there there you go yeah sorry never mind that it was a swamp it was ideal yeah and a lot of what we see washington dc today like from the washington monument to the lincoln memorial that was all literal flood land like they had nothing established there until the mcmillan um commission in 1901 which re like they put landfill in and that's when the tidal basin comes where jefferson memorial and fdr and um, mlk and the cherry blossoms they're all around the tidal mm -hmm. basin now because it was literally like you said Corey, a complete swamp yeah and that's how they kind of it was a called a yeah. foggy bottom <laughs> there's still a metro stop <laughs> called foggy bottom it was an actual term for the swampy so area. Yeah. A swampy area has now mm -hmm. turned into one of the most famous cities in the entire world. I mean, I've heard before that the Capitol building itself is the most recognizable wow. building in the entire world. Like every person knows what, what that is. I would say, well, for as many kids as I take on tour and they all point at it and say, <laughs> oh my gosh, it's the White House. I don't Good know. Point. I might disagree with that statement. <laughs> So, so do you guys remember the first, do you guys remember the first time that you saw Washington, D.C.? Yeah, I was on, it was 2008, actually, and I was supposed to be in China, but there was an earthquake and stuff going on that year, so our trip got canceled, so I had a f ticket I had to spend, so I flew out east and uh, road tripped down to Virginia Beach and then road tripped north where my friend's family lived in Baltimore, so then we like metroed into D.C. on the third of july and it was the hottest i've ever been i got heat stroke so i don't know whatever you call it when you nearly pass out and throw up that was me because i was like four dollars for a bottle of water no thanks i'll just die you can call it heat stroke or sunstroke either one it was miserable <laughs> yeah so that was my first impression of washington dc it was crowded it was hot we couldn't get in the National Archives because it was, I don't know, they were reconstructing it and there was a line like four blocks long and it was exciting and somewhat of an adventure, but I'm glad I've, I've come back and sort of redeemed some of those memories. Yeah, we always tell people on tour to keep drinking water and now uh, I'm sure uh -huh. that's especially pertinent uh, in the mind of Corey. <laughs> yep. Corey, I was living in D.C. at that time and Melissa, <gasps> my sister came out to visit on the 3rd of July. And so what? we were, yep. So we were at the mall area, all of the 3rd of July, probably cross paths. 
Oh my gosh. You should look through my pictures. Oh my gosh. It always comes together. It always comes together. I didn't but, know that. Okay, but we had of all random things, they had all of these tents out because it was the fourth of July. And they had mm-hmm. this area that had, and you're gonna love this story, that had watermelon cut like on Pollyanna. And so Melissa and I got some. Most and I got some watermelon and we ate it like on Pollyanna. And that is my favorite memory of July the 3rd, 2008. Okay, Krista, aside from watermelon, um, you mentioned this, I think in a previous episode, but when was the first time you were in Washington, D.C.? Yeah, I think I did talk about this before. I remember sharing this memory at some point, but the first time I was there was on a family trip. I was 12 years old and I was so excited to get into Washington, D.C. that illegally I sat in the front of our conversion oh. van with my mom. We shared the front seat. We were buckled in, but it was like definitely two to one seat which was not right did you say conversion van oh you know yeah. it. it was like full on like we had a tv in there yeah. like awesome. very but it was very rustic i'm making it sound a lot nicer than it was so um but we were driving yeah, in like green, green acres <laughs> yes <laughs> exactly i wonder how many of our listeners will know green acres so yeah right right so they yeah so we drove in and i remember seeing the lincoln memorial was the first that i saw so we must have been coming on memorial bridge um saw the lincoln memorial and then we headed up independence avenue which i didn't know is that but i i now know and i remember seeing the Capitol and just being blown away and just wanting to work there and that was my first time and i remember i will never i was never the same i was so excited and i always had a love for presidents so it was so fun seeing the white house and how different it was back then with you know it was pre 9-11 so we drove like right up next to where our our students normally are taking pictures now by the north side of the White House, but um, at the, those days it was an open street and we just drove right by. So that is my first time to Washington, D.C. and certainly and hopefully not my last. How about you, Aaron? When was the first time you were in Washington, D.C.? It was on a, uh, an eighth grade church trip. Uh, so yeah, that was my first time, and we actually stayed at a mission in D.C. Uh, it was kind of a working trip, mm-hmm. um, so we got to visit. I remember just being fascinated with all the all the memorials and different things. And uh, yeah, I think now you know as we we take uh, eighth graders on tour, you know, I was certainly one of those at the <laughs> kind of all over the place uh, when I was on tour and they kind of constantly had to rein me in because I was just always wanting to see things and go away from the group. Um, but I remember that trip was just fabulous and that was kind of uh, just almost a little bit of a segue uh, into uh, my interest, a greater interest in history hmm. uh, because it really connected some of the dots and being there uh, just was, it really meant a lot to me. So that was, uh, yeah, my eighth grade year. That's phenomenal. I know. I wonder how many other eighth graders who've been with Axe over the years have similar stories of their, mm-hmm. that's where their interest for history started. I love that. We know. Wow. What a fun question. Thanks, Jeff from California. We <laughs> clearly were able to riff on that one for a while. Um, and if you guys have questions for us as well, don't hesitate to send us an email at behind the tour at acts-tours.com. So send us those emails, send us those questions. We cannot wait to answer them. Mm. All right. Well, it is time for Behind the Door, the 
time where we get to talk about special locations that we don't always get to talk about while on tour. Maybe we see a door and we don't get to talk about what's behind it. So today is such a day and we're going to be going a little bit off the beaten path to one of our locations that we visit for American Christian Tours in Springfield, Illinois. Aaron, why don't you tell us about the door that we're going to be suffering what it is behind? Yeah, yeah, it, it's really cool. On a, a tour that we coordinate, uh, we, we kind of do a uh, Abraham Lincoln theme, and uh, I've done a couple where we start at his birthplace in Hodgenville, Kentucky. And uh, I lived in Louisville for a little while, and I actually got to go down there um, on my own and kind of poke around a little bit. But mm. So we start in Hodgenville, where he's born. Uh, and then we kind of trace, you know, a little bit of his early years. We head over uh, to uh, the, the southwestern part of Indiana, where he moved to, uh, and then over to New Salem and up to Springfield. And then we actually end up in Chicago because Lincoln had a, he did a lot in Chicago. A lot of people don't know that. Huh. But the door in Springfield, Krista, um, is really cool because it's an amazing memorial. And of course, this is where Abraham Lincoln is buried. Um, right. So it's, uh, it's a wonderful place uh, that uh, and, and you have to see the memorial. Uh, it's just, it's, it's amazing. Um, and so you walk in the door of this memorial and uh, it's, it's a little bit dark, um, but it's, it's beautiful. It's kind of like contradictory, beautifully dark. <laughs> and <laughs> and uh, it's just a, a great tribute um, to his life. And there's lots of stories that accompany Abraham Lincoln. In fact, Corey, you, you know, a couple stories about the memorial there and his death, I think, right? Oh, yes. All the death stories. <laughs> the death stories. <laughs> uh, well, do you guys probably remember when the anniversary of Lincoln's assassination was like a couple of years ago and like DC was having this big deal and they had all these like things left over from the big like death train that wound its way from Washington all the way to Springfield. It's kind of interesting. Oh, that's right. I yeah. forgot about that. Yeah. Yeah. They put those at the at Ford's Theater mm-hmm. too. I think they had a lot yeah. on display there. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So in DC, but a lot of stuff it's actually like in Michigan but Springfield all that to say so yeah this super super ornate memorial is a little bit like overwhelming and there's like a bust by um Gutzen Borglum which we all know is <gasps> no the way of, yeah yes it's a match you've probably seen the bust because it's that's also is like a replica in the Capitol building you know like in the crypt there's yeah the yeah yeah same thing same one um right there and what is he and what is he more famous for the mountain rushmore or as you call it (laughs) mountain rushmore (laughs) (laughs) so yeah it's pretty neat but it's ornate and partly because they were so concerned with grave robbers so yeah once they finally finished her off and buried him deep 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 down in the ground Aaron, you were saying they covered it completely over with cement wherever you're from yeah. yeah so there's no getting at abraham lincoln he is down there for good yeah and they were very afraid that they were going to steal his body mm-hmm. for a for a long time there's a, a legend so my family's from like central illinois and in decatur where my family is buried there's the secret secret door there in the cemetery and rumor has it is that where abraham lincoln's body was kept while they were creating this like crypt but you know how local legends are you never know. 
Well, and Abraham Lincoln's body was for almost, I think, 14, maybe 15 days on that train uh, that they had uh, paraded mm. around the United States and they eventually wound up in Springfield. So that's a that's a long time uh, for a body to be on a train. Living or right, dead. Right. All right. Well, we've sufficiently seen what's behind the door. Uh, let's go ahead and take a little break and then we'll be right back to talk more about our good friend Abraham Lincoln. Hi, my name is Julie Groton and I'm an education program leader with American Christian Tours. Have you ever wondered what it would be like to walk alongside Thomas Jefferson on the most historic avenue in America? Well, you can do just that when you come with us to Colonial Williamsburg, the world's largest living history museum. The past will come to life as you stroll the streets and learn the stories behind some of America's most famous founders, as well as experience the ins and outs of 18th century life. You'll leave Williamsburg with a greater understanding of our revolutionary history, as well as a greater appreciation for the providence of God in our victory over the British. And this is just one stop along Virginia's historic triangle. Go to axe-tours.com today to learn about this trip and many more. I hope to see you soon. Well, welcome back. We are now going to start up with our Carved in Stone series, which we kicked off last episode. It's somewhat of a mini series, if you will, featuring some of the most iconic and well-known stone structures and memorials around Washington, D.C. Last week, we touched a little bit on Martin Luther King Jr.'s memorial, and this week, we're going to zero in just just down the street to one of the largest, most iconic monuments in America, I would argue, the Lincoln Memorial. So lots of stuff carved in stone from 48 states to two of Lincoln's very own speeches to a very famous phrase from a very famous American on those steps as well. But um, man, it is a really beautiful monument. Would you guys agree? Yeah, this is what was your definitely one of my favorites, if not my favorite. There, there is there's a lot of symbolism in the memorial itself, uh, just in, in mm-hmm. reference to who. Uh, Abraham Lincoln was. And as as we remember him, um, the memorial really speaks to, I think, the, his legacy. And Mm -hmm. I don't want to say transcendence, because I think it was, it wasn't his war secretary, Edward Stanton, that says now he Mm -hmm. belongs to the ages when, when he died. Mm -hmm. Um, And truly, Abraham Lincoln was, was an amazing man. And I think to me, one of the most amazing aspects about remembering him and even in the memorial which uh, when I look at the second inaugural address, I I think of all the time is his faith, uh, his Mm -hmm. faith in God. So I think this, this memorial means a lot to me. Um, And just, again, when you stand in a place that you've read about a certain person and studied them, uh, it really uh, is impactful. Great. And I think for our students and for, you know, those who we bring to this memorial, A lot of times I find when I'm asking participants who've just landed or, you know, we're just picking them up, like, what are you most excited to see? And a lot of times it's Lincoln Memorial. And I think that it's one memorial that is not, you know, overhyped by any means. You know, you Mm -hmm. look and so many people know this memorial, but when we can bring people there and talk about his life, talk about his faith, talk about who he was, um, you know, before the war even, I think it adds such a depth of how much 
I appreciate the memorial. And, you know, you look and go, these are not just memorials for people who Abraham Lincoln wasn't just put, you know, right in the middle of the civil war and was assassinated right after his life leading up to the civil war and to his inauguration as being president and his faith is just such a huge part of who he was. Um, Corey and I talk about this a lot. We were homeschooled and Lincoln did a lot of his own self-teaching. Mm-hmm. He, he taught himself. And one of the books that he used more than any other book was the Bible. And mm-hmm. if you read certain words of his, you know, a house divided cannot stand. We're all familiar with that. That phrase comes directly from Jesus himself, from the Bible. And so the impact that his faith had on his presidency is huge, especially then when you look at that kind of overarching premise too of going his presidency has more influence in American history than arguably any other president, except for maybe George Washington. And that's, you know, I mean, we could argue that one back and forth, but, um, but yeah, just to talk about his faith in a, in a clear context, I think is so important for our listeners to know who's behind the man and behind that memorial um, is really such a, a cool um, I don't know, a cool conversation to have. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And I think that Lincoln was, a, was truly a remarkable president. And I think maybe even the most remarkable that our nation's ever had. He didn't, he didn't give any very simple answers to all the questions that he faced, the complex questions and the, the environment that mm-hmm. he found himself in. Uh, but again, you know, we think that God puts people in certain places for his purposes at certain times. And to me, Lincoln was one of those. And again, as I think about the memorial, um, it's just, it's just really evident. Um, I, again, I, I refer back to the uh, the second inaugural address and in it, I just sense that there's, you know, Lincoln wrestled with his theology in different periods in his life, like we all do. Um, but his he saw God's providence in everything, uh, and he, he believed that the president should lead and should challenge citizens to be really virtuous and, and righteous, so to speak. And I don't think he ever hesitated to refer to God in Scripture. Something that always sticks out to me is his boldness in pursuing what he knew to be right. You know, even we talk about like, yes, we're standing in the shadow of this greatest monument to arguably the greatest president, but he wasn't exactly popular, you know, when he was president. I mean, hello, he got assassinated. So, I mean, he was surrounded, even the in-laws were Southern sympathizers and commanders in the Confederate (laughs) army. So, you know, but yet he, and this comes out of his, his second inaugural address, which is carved in stone at the monument where he says with firmness in the right as God gives us to see the right. So, you know, as far as we know what God's right is to stand with that confidence, knowing that when we do what is right, I think there was one time where somebody said to Lincoln, uh, you know, I sure hope God's on our side. And he said, no, I I'd rather be on God's side because he's always on the side of right. And I think we can take a lot of courage and take a, you know, that kind of example that, you know, maybe you are alone standing alone for truth and what is right but god is on the side of right and if you're on his side then you're on the right side even in the darkest of days so i think that type of knowledge and of god's sovereignty and and righteousness also gave him the courage to to press on even in those dark days yeah absolutely well i think even you know that we look back on this huge figure and think about how he was feeling during those days, mm-hmm. you know, knowing that he was supporting a war that was killing off its citizens mm-hmm. um, at a, such a drastic pace. I mean, even the equivalent is something like 
the, you know, I've heard the most recent I've heard is over 600 to 800,000 men died during the entire war, not to mention that Gettysburg had one of the largest casualty rates, just that battle alone. That'd be something along the lines of 6 million being killed today, just in terms of population percentage wise. And so the burden that he had of just humanity, and there are these stories where he wouldn't sleep and he would just wander around the white house at night. And, um, you know, that famous picture of him that we all know doesn't look like the man who was running for president four years prior. It literally looks like he is aged about 20 years within those four years, just the amount of pressure. But like you said, not buckling to that pressure and not um, looking for an easy way out, but looking for the unification of our nation. And really that was going into the civil war, right? Like he wanted to keep the, the nation unified, even though he was a strong abolitionist, he did not want slavery. He wasn't there to fight that. He wanted to keep America unified. And halfway through his presidency is when he had the emancipation proclamation saying that slaves are to be freed. And, you know, just this amazing thing to go, he wasn't doing that as a popular thing either. That wasn't like, oh, good, I'll get some browning points. He was just a man who did what was right when the time called for him to do the right thing. And even the sacrifice that he gave to our nation of his entire life, because he would not have been assassinated, um, you know, had he just stayed home yeah. and been a lawyer. Yeah. Yeah, and, and even I think of the, boy, you know, there, there's so much you can say about uh, Lincoln, but I think, again, when he was giving that second inaugural address, uh, he was really speaking on the eve uh, of, of military victory, right, in 1865, when I think many expected him to, to celebrate the, well, like maybe the war's over, or even the successes of the Union. Uh, but he really, in that address, calls on his audience to recognize the evil of slavery that was in their midst, uh, because in as he goes on to say, you know, you know, every drop of drawn blood with the lash shall be paid by another drawn with a sword. And so is that aspect, you know, the, the sword, him basically, again, giving reference to God of the sword of military battle uh, was the judgment of God. And then he concludes in his, you know, his address with malice towards none. So that just, you know, that reveals a lot of Lincoln's heart uh, to me, uh, his humility. You know, one other thing I can think of you guys that I think is really cool about the monument um, that I that I tell kids uh, almost every time I go there is, you know, we know that the uh, the Abraham Lincoln statue is 19 feet tall. And um, if you were to if you were to crawl up into his lap, which I'd say that most of us would want to do, you know, just to cuddle up with Abraham Lincoln <laughs> um, and to look from his eyesight where he's looking, where he's seated. Uh, you can see the entire reflection of the Washington Monument uh, in the reflection pool. And I think that's, you know, again, the, the symbolism in the memorials in Washington, D.C., and all over the United States is incredible to me. Uh, but this really depicted kind of who he was, too, when he was growing up on the frontier. He, one of the books that he read um, that he borrowed from somebody was uh, Weems' uh, The Life of Washington. And he really admired Washington and his humility. And that's reflected in his eyesight. He can see all of the Washington Monument. So I just, th I, I just think stuff like that's cool. All right. Well, it is everyone's <laughs> most anticipated portion of the week, I would say. Mine, at least. I guess I'm speaking for myself. It is time for... 
Kronk's Corner. This is the <laughs> corner, corner. This is when Aaron Kronk has two minutes, not a second more than two minutes, to tell us a story, to talk about the weather, to do, to talk about anything. Because Aaron always has such great little nuggets of wisdom. And what did we say last week for velocity? However you want to phrase it. So that's my middle name, actually. Oh, it is. That's a great middle name. Yeah. yeah, yeah right. That's awesome. All right. Well, Aaron, the timer is set. And it's about to go. You have two minutes starting. Three, two, one, go. One of my favorite presidents is James Garfield. And there's a James Garfield statue that's located uh, in the front, I guess, or back, whichever one you want to pick, of the Capitol building uh, around one of the turn, uh, turn uh, the circles. And he reminds me, he was one of my favorite presidents for a number of reasons, but I'll give you a little tidbit that I love because there were six Civil War soldiers that not only survived the bloody conflict uh, of the Civil War, but that went on to become the leader of our country and James Garfield was one of them. But there are the other ones. Number one is Ulysses S. Grant. He was a soldier in the um, Civil War in the Union and he went on to become President of the United States. In 1868, Rutherford B. Hayes, many people are going, who's that? Well, he was a president, almost 40. When the war broke out, Hayes volunteered and nearly lost his left arm. He was wounded in battle. Well, he became president in 1877. James Garfield was next, that's number three. Number four is Chester Arthur. And he served as a quartermaster general for the state of New York uh, and was responsible for delivering supplies to New York soldiers. Number five, Benjamin Harrison. He was elected president in 1888. He was a soldier also in the Civil War. And the last one is William McKinley. Uh, the bloodiest single day of the war uh, occurred at Antietam. Uh, well, guess who was there? William McKinley was there. And he was elected president in 1896 and in 1900. So do I, how many seconds do I have left? About 30. 30 seconds. That's awesome. Man, I talked faster than I thought I would. Well, so I'll give you one more little tidbit. There's another president that I like, uh, Grover Cleveland. And some, you know, some people look like their name. He just looked like a Grover. Uh, Grover Cleveland was the one president during the post-war years who did not serve in the military, but he, that was for a reason. He was widowed. He had to get a substitute, somebody to go into the war for him. All right, Amazing. time's up. <laughs> time's up. That was good. Wow, I did not. But I do. You did great. You did great. I did not know that about the about the six of them. That's pretty amazing. That is fun. Well, and do you know what? I like that because those are, I think, the most forgotten presidents for sure. And anytime you can bring up presidential trivia, I am I'm there for it. Well, in my point, you know, you guys with that is that uh, all those guys that came out of the Civil War, uh, they went through just a crazy, crazy hard time and yet God still had plans for all their lives and he brought them through it all right Aaron well that was a fantastic Cronk's corner each week we like to leave you with a call to action and we like to leave you with a little bit of inspiration as you're going into your life and into everyday life just a reminder that all of the individuals that we talk about they all only had one life and we each only have one life to live in knows what kind of impact you can have. So um, just as a reminder, anytime that you want to ask us questions, please send us an email at behind the tours at axe-tours.com. That's behind the tour at axe-tours.com. All right, Corey, well, you are going to leave us with our call to action today. So 
tell us about what we're going to hear about. My class in history, we've been studying the Second Great Awakening, and one of the famous uh, preachers of the Second Great Awakening was a man named Lyman Beecher, and so he would go up and down, one of those famous circuit writers who would preach the gospel here, there, and everywhere, camp meetings, and whatnot. He had a rather extensive family. His son went on to be a preacher as well, but his daughter um, especially just became a woman of truth, I would say. Um, her name was... Harriet. And Harriet went to school, well, they were up from New England, and eventually they moved out to the Cincinnati area and, you know, lived their lives out there in the wild, wild west of Ohio. <laughs> and um, just across the river from Cincinnati was a slaveholding state. So she grew up in the shadow of slavery, but never having, you know, always having been an abolitionist herself. Well, eventually she married a man who was kind of a writer his last name was Stowe, and she was encouraged to start writing. So they had moved, I believe, back up to New England, and she started writing this book that was published in serial form, which was very common for the mid-1800s, one chapter at a time. And the story that she published, piece by piece, eventually came to be known as Uncle Tom's Cabin, which has been credited um, I think justifiably as one of the one of the catalysts for the Civil War, because in that book it portrayed um, painstakingly and jaw-droppingly and eye-openingly the atrocities of slavery. Um, in fact, later on in her life, she went to England first of all and met a lot of people, and they were so impressed with her work. And then she met Abraham Lincoln himself. She went to the White House and met this man, and he famously said, or reportedly said, "So you're the little woman who wrote that book." who started this great war. <laughs> so, I mean, yeah, isn't that crazy? So, I don't know. I love that story of, again, just someone standing for truth and speaking it unabashedly, even though it was unpopular, no doubt. Um, and yet we're still talking about them today. So take courage, take hope, speak truth. Mm, that's a phenomenal story. And that's a great call to action, Corey. Thank you so much for sharing that. Well, thank you, everybody, for joining us today. And as always, remember that uh, your story is a part of his story. And God put you here. And now, for such a time as this, we'll talk to you soon. Bye. Bye.